Um, Scott Fullman is a computer scientist and professor emeritus at Carnegie Mellon University's Language Technologies Institute and Computer Science Department. Scott has devoted over 40 years of his life to the study and development of artificial intelligence. Yet on September 19, 1982, he created something that will outlast his career working with artificial intelligence. And you know what it is he created? This. The Smiley Emoticon. As the name Emoticon suggests, Fallman suggested that people use the Emoticon to let readers know the emotions behind their message. Here's a picture of him showing the slide. How many of you use emoticons or the new advanced emojis? Most of you, yeah, we, we do all the time. It's a helpful tool, is it not? Right? For, for when someone sends you a smiley face, a smiley emoji or emoticon, they are, they're letting you know that in some way, in some way, they are happy, right? Or when they send you a frown face, they're letting you know that they are sad. Or if they send you this, I think they're dancing with joy. Is that what this means? I think so. <laughs> you know, it's, it's one thing to send a smiley face, but it's quite another thing to actually feel happy. In fact, for some of you, I wonder if that might be an emotion you haven't felt in quite some time. In fact, is that true of you? Here's the question I, I want us to consider this morning, and that's this. What brings a true, lasting, and satisfying happiness? To put it another way, what reality can provide us with joy no matter our circumstances. Now, Christian, before you say you know the answer, tell me, does your life prove your answer? Because if you want to know what you really believe about happiness, not what you say you believe about happiness, but what you actually believe, look at the choices and decisions you make. What do they reveal? Because if your actions don't line up with their answer, you know what that means? It means you really don't believe your answer. It means you're looking to something else for your happiness. 
And what I want to say at the outset this morning is that simply ignoring the reality of this disconnect is not going to do you any good. Because here's the deal, friend. All of us in this room, we're on a quest for happiness. We all are. And this quest can lead us down all sorts of paths. And the question is, which path leads to true sustaining happiness? Well, turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to Psalm 32. Several weeks ago, we began a new short series in the book of Psalms, and as I mentioned last week, we're simply calling it Summer Psalms. And two weeks ago, Steve Wellam did a really outstanding job of giving both an overview of the Psalter as well as an exposition of the first two Psalms, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. And something that we just want to keep reiterating is, and that was mentioned that first week, is that the, the Psalter is not a bag of random marbles, but instead it's a fine woven tapestry. That is, this book has been carefully put together. And last week we looked at Psalm 29. And you'll recall that exhorted us to give God the most weight in our lives. Remember this? Multiple times in that psalm, David says, ascribe to the Lord glory. Ascribe to the Lord glory to his name. He's saying, give God the most weight in your life. And you'll recall the psalm is spelled out four reasons why we ought to do that. We ought to give God the most weight in our lives. Number one, because he deserves it. <laughs> that preaches. Number two, he thunders in power. He reigns as king. And what a comfort, he strengthens his people. Well, this morning, we're going to study Psalm 32. And the question this text answers is, how can a person obtain a happy state? That's the question this text answers. So let's find out the answer together. If you haven't already, turn with me in your Bibles, like I said, to Psalm 32. That's page 462 in that paperback bio in the seat in front of you. And follow along with me as I read the 11 verses of this chapter. David writes this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He writes, Blessed is the one whose transgressions is forgiven whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Now David's going to reflect on his own experience. He says, for when I kept silent, meaning when he covered his sin, he concealed his sin, he said, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of the summer. And notice what he did. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. 
I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. So notice, he, he starts off with what the blessed person is. He talks about his own experience, how he covered his sin, then he confessed his sin, and he received forgiveness. And now in verse 6, we get the first imperative of this psalm. He says this, Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. He's saying, you too, reader, go to the Lord in prayer and confess your sins. He says, surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. And now here, God himself picks up the pen and speaks to us. He says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Okay, God, what is the counsel you are to give us? He says this, be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with a bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Amen and amen. This is God's good word. Uh, how many of you like the window seat when either you're flying or riding a train? It's got some window seat people here? Okay. David Redding recounts a story that a prison warden loved to tell. An older friend of the warden once boarded a train and noticed that the fellow sitting next to him was very low and sad. He could tell something was bothering this young man who was sitting in the window seat. Well, as they got to talking, this young man confessed that he had just been released from a distant penitentiary as a convict. He then went on to share that his whole life had cast a terrible shadow over his family. His criminal record had heaped shame upon them. And while he was serving time, he had lost almost all contact with them. So as you can imagine, the young man didn't know what to make of his family's silence. He was hoping against hope that their failure to reach out to them and contact him was due to the fact that they couldn't afford to write to him. But he didn't know for sure. I mean, it could be that because of his shameful actions and the shame that he heaped upon the family, that they wanted nothing to do with him. So before his prison sentence was up, the young man devised a plan to find out how his family felt towards him. And this is what he did. He wrote them a letter explaining 
that he would be on a train that would pass by their little farm on the outskirts of town. If they could forgive him, they were to hang a white ribbon on the old apple tree near the tracks. But if they could not forgive him, they were to leave the tree in its natural state. So if there was no white ribbon when he passed by, he would then know how they felt and he would never bother them again. Well, as the train approached the family's home, the suspense was more than the young man could handle. So you know what he did? He exchanged seats with his older companion and he asked him, look, could you sit by the window and could you report to me the results? Can you imagine the suspense building up? Well, moments later, the tree was in sight and the older man's eyes began to fill with tears. He then placed his hand on the young man's knee and with a hoarse whisper he said, it's all right. The whole tree is covered in white ribbons. Notice how David begins this psalm. What does he say? He says, Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven. That is, happy is the man, joyful is the man who has been forgiven, please hear me, by the Lord. And is it any wonder why? Because far greater than a family's forgiveness is the Lord's. In Psalm 1, David exclaims, Blessed is the man who walks not in the way of the wicked, but who meditates on the law of the Lord. Now, here in Psalm 32, we see that same phrase again. And David teaches us that true and lasting happiness, the true happy state is being found forgiven by our Maker. Now, Consider for a moment what David is actually saying here. Friend, don't miss this. David is saying that true and lasting and sustaining and abiding happiness is not found in the pleasures of sin, but in its forgiveness. Did you see that? Man, the, the message of the world is the exact opposite, is it not? All around us, we are wooed and called and shouted at and encouraged to go down the path of self-indulgence. That's where happiness is found. Is not the call of the world that happiness is found in the fleeting pleasures of sin? Yet Christian, please hear me. True blessing is not found in what you can get away with. No, true blessing, true happiness begins with confession and continues with praise to God for His grace and salvation. Amen? This is why David calls the reader to go to the Lord in prayer while he may be found there in verse 6. As I mentioned, that's the first imperative. 
David begins with, with his statement, blessed is the one who's forgiven by the Lord. Then he recounts his own experience. And Dave's giving his own experience as an illustration, as an example to say, don't do what I did, concealing your sin. No, confess it so you can receive the Lord's forgiveness. You see, friend, speaking from experience, David's message to us is simply this. Uncover your sin so God can cover it. Uncover your sin so God can cover it. This, I want to argue, is the main melody, the main point of this psalm. Don't conceal your sin. Don't excuse it. Don't cover it up. Don't blame shift. No, uncovered. That is, confess it. So God can cover it and forgive you. That's where true joy and happiness is found. In fact, notice the language David uses there in verse 1 and verse 5. The end of verse 1 and then all of verse 5. Notice, when we uncover our sin, God covers it. Yet when we cover it up, that is, when we try to conceal it, it remains uncovered. That is, it's not forgiven by God. Thus, Dave calls us, David calls us to confess our sins, uncover it, so we can experience true happiness knowing our sins are forever forgiven. And in faith, I want to argue, I am not speaking hyperbole here. I'm not speaking pie in the sky. I'm not just having some preacher talk here. Listen to me. Friend, I want to argue that there is no greater reality. There is no greater joy than knowing that your sins have been forgiven by the one true and living God. That's where joy is found. Friend, paste that in your gray matter. All things else of this world will fail to satisfy you and give you joy compared to this. I love what John Calvin has written. Again, Calvin is always so succinct. He says this. He says, David here teaches us that the happiness of men consists only in the forgiveness of sins. Why? For nothing can be more terrible than to have God for your enemy. Nor can he be gracious to us in any other way than by pardoning our transgressions. So, how can we come to know and truly experience this life-giving joy? In other words, how do we uncover our sins so God can cover it? What does that practically look like? Well, I believe David shows us in fact, he wants to show us. In fact, the whole reason he's recounting his experience is so we would learn how to do this. And as we look closely at this psalm, there are four important actions we must take in order to experience the joy-filled blessing of the Lord's forgiveness. And I wanted to say uh, one more thing before we look at the first. You sinned this week. And so did I. 
Some of you have sinned and you continue to sin because you're not a Christian. You're unregenerate. The Spirit of Christ does not dwell within you. And friend, there is a coming judgment for your sin. There is. And that's eternal damnation in hell. You're going to stand before God one day and give an account. But that doesn't have to be your future. As we sing about, as we talk about, in Christ, God has made provision for your sin so that you can be forgiven and have the hope of eternal life, the, the inheritance we talked about at the beginning of this service. And as we work our way through this text, I want to just put all my cards on the table. I want to be pressing you to put your faith in Jesus Christ. Now, there are others of you that do belong to Jesus Christ through faith in Him, but you still sin. And God calls us to keep short accounts so that when we do sin, we don't conceal it like David, but we uncover it so we can receive his cleansing and forgiveness. Not for salvation, but for greater intimacy and joy with the Lord. Right? So, so how can you uncover your sin so God can cover it? Well, the first action is this, and that is, forsake concealment. Look again at verses 1 through 3. David says, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, meaning covered by God. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When he's speaking of deceit, what he's meaning is you're deceiving God and others that you have no sin by covering it up. And then verse 3, for when I kept silent, meaning concealing my sin, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. In Edgar Allan Poe's haunting short story, The Telltale Heart, the main character commits murder and then hides his victim's body under the floorboards. Confident no one will find any evidence of the murder, the main character, who also is the narrator, he invites the police to search the very room where the body is concealed under the floorboards. The police search the room, suspect nothing, and leave. The narrator then goes about his life with a pleasant and easy manner about him. However, it isn't long before the narrator begins to feel uncomfortable. Unable to escape the lingering guilt of his deed, he then begins to hear what? Remember? The heartbeat. The heartbeat of the victim he is buried under the floorboards. A cold sweat covers him as the beat goes on relentlessly. It refuses to go away. And not only does it refuse to go away, but it keeps increasing in volume. Terrified, 
terrified by the violent beating of the heart, the narrator then breaks down and confesses. He invites the plebs over and tells them to rip off the floorboards to reveal the body. I see faith as, as that short story so powerfully illustrates the pounding that drove the narrator mad was not the grave below, but the pounding within his own chest. The affliction he incurred from hiding his crime. In faith, so it goes for all who conceal their sin. Notice the physical torment David experienced as the result of concealing his sin. Notice what he says there in verse 3. He wasted away. He groaned all day long. His strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Like the narrator in the telltale heart, David experienced physical torment. And you know what? David is not alone. I have counseled many people who have suffered physical anguish as a result of hiding their sin. Ulcers, headaches, insomnia, chronic fatigue. These are just a few of the physical effects that hidden sin brings. Now, to be sure, not every disease or affliction is the result of personal sin. The book of Job, as well as Psalm 73, corrects such a mechanical view. But nonetheless, friend, there remains a reality that hidden sin often produces harmful effects on the body, and that is precisely what this passage is teaching. So faith from his own experience, you know what David is saying to you and I today? He's saying, look, saying, look, look at what concealed sin did to me. Don't follow in my steps, David is saying. Instead, he's saying, forsake concealment. Bring your sin into the light and confess it to God so you can experience the blessedness and joy of forgiveness. However, I want you to notice that David just doesn't cite the physical torment of concealed sin to convince us that we ought to confess our sins to God. Now notice again what we see in verses 1 and 2. Notice how David also weaves three descriptions of sin into these opening verses. And why does David do this? It's so that we would be repulsed by the vile nature of sin. He talks about transgression, sin, and iniquity. Old Testament scholar Peter Craigie uh, sums it up well. He writes this. He says, three principal terms are employed to designate the dimensions of human evil. He's talking about these first two verses. The first is transgression. The, the Hebrew word is the one there in, in the parentheses. And transgression is namely acts as reflecting rebellion against God. Number two is sin, the most general term, designating an offense or turning away from the true path. Number three is iniquity, indicating distortion, criminality, 
or the absence of respect for the divine will. And then he says this, the three terms as a whole specify the full dimensions of human evil and hence the situation from which a person might be delivered through divine forgiveness, thus finding happiness. Now, you know why we often don't think forgiveness of sins by the Lord provides true happiness? Because we have a deficient view of sin. That is, we don't see it for how truly evil it is. But faith, please hear me, your gossip is not some benign action. Your lustful thoughts in viewing pornography is not trivial. Your envy of another person's lifestyle, your lying to your parents, your selfish attitude, they are not insignificant. No, what all these deeds and attitudes and actions are, they are, please hear me, rebellion against God. They are the absence of respect for God and His law. Friend, please hear me. The greatest evil about our sin is not that it harms other people, which is terrible, but that it goes against our holy and righteous God. Is it any wonder then that concealing such sins will either drive a person mad or ill or both? In fact, can I ask, is that you? Is your heart beating right now? Because like David, you've been concealing your sin. Do you feel like you're wasting away? Friend, bring your sin into the light and confess it to the Lord. Indeed, do what we see next, and that is respond to conviction. Look at verse 4. Notice carefully, he says, For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. Whose hand is that? Say, uh, I'm going to ask you a question. Feel free to respond. Whose hand is that? God's. Your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Respond to conviction. Uh, Reverend Walter Ross was licensed to preach in 1714, but he found the folks around Kilmore, Scotland, unruly and rather barbaric. One village kept active watch for his approach. One day, the alarm was spread that he was coming. So you know what the people did? They all fled from their homes, got into their boats, and sailed some distance from the shore. Reverend Ross was understandably angry, finding all the homes empty. So you know what he did? He went into a number of the houses, took all their cooking utensils, and locked them up in a safe place. Eventually, hunger forced the locals to go meet with Ross. But 
he had to take severe measures to bring that about. True story. Now, now tell me, why did Ross remove the cooking utensils? He removed the cooking utensils so the locals would come to him. Do you know why God's hand was heavy on David? You know why God allowed affliction upon him? For the very same reason, and that is so David would return to him. You see, Faith, please hear me. There is a mercy in the misery. Make no mistake, the Lord is the one who is afflicting David and maybe he's doing the same to you. The question is, how will you respond? This text is calling you to uncover your sin to God. Respond to correction. And how should you respond? Well, look at what we see next. That's to confess your sins. Look at verses five and seven. David said, I acknowledge my sin to you. And I did not cover my iniquity. This is where we're getting this covering idea from. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. Now notice, the one whose hand was heavy upon him, he says, you are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble you surround me with shouts of deliverance. You, you know what happens when you sin against someone? A spouse, a friend, a coworker, a parent, a child. You know what happens when you sin against that person and instead of you owning and admitting your sin, you make excuses? You know what happens? You actually prevent them from forgiving you and thus having the relationship be restored. Do you know this? When you sin and you make excuses or you conceal or you justify and you don't own it, you are keeping the relationship from being restored. You're actually robbing the person the opportunity to forgive you. You know, so often when we sin against someone, we think it will make things better if we just offer excuses. Hey, you know, I was angry at you, but look, man, I had, a, I had a hard day at work. Or you have no idea, I've, I've been caring for my small kids, or I've been caring for my elderly parents, or uh, I've been rushed to go here or there. You have no idea. And we make these excuses, thinking it will make the situation better. Or we downplay the offense. Nothing could be further from the truth. Faith you know what are some of the most life-giving words you can speak? It's this. What I did was wrong. I should have known better. Would you forgive me? Life. Life-giving words. Then that allows the person to say, Yes, I forgive you, and the relationship can be restored. You know what sucks the life out of a relationship? Excuses in justifying your actions and not fully owning your sin. 
Notice David in verse 5. Here we see David making a humble confession, much like the one we just talked about. Indeed, I think we get a model for what true confession looks like. And notice, David does three things. First, he acknowledges his sin. That is, he agreed with God that what he had done was sin. This is, what I did was wrong. Now, some believe David is referring to his sin with Bathsheba. This could certainly be the case. However, the text doesn't specify. All we know is that David sinned, and in his confession, he acknowledged his wrongdoing to God. He didn't justify his actions. John Piper, he provides this helpful insight. Speaking of confession, he says this, gets to the point. Confession to God is not merely admitting our sin as real, but also rejecting our sin as repulsive. Right? What I did was wrong. I, I, I know that hurt you. That was wrong of me. I own it. God, what I did was wrong. It broke your holy law. Second, he did not cover his iniquity. Do you see that? what he said there in verse 5, the second line? That is, he owned his sin. He stopped trying to conceal it, but instead he took full responsibility for what he had done. And then third, he confessed his transgression. That is, he actually spoke to God in prayer. And again, what's, what was the Lord's response? Tell me, what did, how did the Lord respond to David's confession? What did he do? He forgave him. As several commentators have pointed out, the Hebrew word for forgive, or forgave there in verse 5, is a common verb in the Old Testament that means to lift up and carry away. The idea is, is that a forgiveness is a relief from a burden. Think of, I think of, you know, when, you, when you're bringing in the groceries, you know, who tries to do it in one trip? You know what I'm saying? Try to do it in one trip. And you're bringing in all your groceries, right? And you're just, you just can't wait to get to the counter and, ugh, relief the burden, okay? That's, that's, that's the dominant way we ought to think about forgiveness. There's a relief from a burden, the burden of our guilt and our sin. But, but, but there's also some other vocabulary that David uses to describe forgiveness. Earlier in verse 1, you recall how David describes forgiveness as having your sin covered. Then the following verse, forgiveness is also likened to God not charging one with iniquity. That is, God does not hold us liable. So notice, in this psalm, we not only get an accurate description of what confession is, but we also get a full understanding of what forgiveness. The vocabulary of forgiveness is this. It's relief from a burden. It's the hiding of a record, and it's the dismissal of a debt. And the question arises, how can these things be? Friend, please hear me. If our rebellion is to be lifted, who carries it? If our sin is to be covered, who erases it? If we are not charged with iniquity, who pays? And you know what the answer is? The answer lies in David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? What does Peter write in 1 Peter 1.24? Drawing upon the imagery of Isaiah 53, Peter writes that Jesus himself, listen, 
carried our sins in his body on the tree. Jesus is the one who carried our sin burden. What does Paul write in Colossians 2.14? Speaking of Christ on the cross, Paul writes, He erased the certificate of debt that was against us and has taken it out of the way by nailing it to the cross. Jesus covered our sin through his death on the cross. And what does the prophet Isaiah say in Isaiah 53.6? Speaking of Jesus, he says, But the Lord made the punishment fall on him. The punishment we deserve. Jesus paid the debt, so we are no longer charged with iniquity. Amen? You see, friend, this is so important. Please hear me. It's important to note that confession is the condition, not the cause of forgiveness. Don't miss this. Confession is the condition, not the cause. Confession is essential but it does not confer forgiveness that only comes from the one who has been wronged. And you know what the one who has been wrong promises over and over again in Scripture? God promises that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen? What good news So let me ask you, why wouldn't you confess your sins? Why would you still try to hide and conceal them? When David speaks of the flood of waters there in verse 6, he's referring to God's judgment. The idea is that the one who has experienced God's forgiveness need not fear the flood of his judgment. I, I read a story this week of a of a wagon train that was crossing a prairie. And when the wagon train came over the hill, they were terrified to see a prairie fire racing in their direction. It seemed as if they were going to be engulfed by the flames. The wind was blowing right in their face. But the leader quickly rode to the rear of the caravan, and what he did was he lit the dry grass behind them on fire. So the same winds blowing it towards them was also blowing the fire further back this way. Within minutes, they all moved to the burned-off area behind them. But as the heat and the smoke became more tense from the fire approaching them, a little girl in the wagon train cried out, Are you sure we're safe? Oh, yes, the wagon master replied. He said, We're safe because we're standing where the fire has already been. Friend, if Christ has taken the fire of God's judgment for you, then you're safe to take refuge in Him. Then finally, the last thing I want to draw to your attention is to change your course. Look at what God says here in verses 8 through 11. And, and I, as I mentioned, we know this is God taking the pen and giving us counsel not Dave, because of the promise that his eye will be upon us. David's eye can't be upon us, but God's can. Now listen to the counsel of the Lord. So we go from Dave saying, David saying, the happy state is found in the Lord's forgiveness. He recounts his experience of him concealing it, then bringing to the light, receiving that forgiveness. Then God says, okay, that's great, Dave. Now I'm going to chime in. And this is what he says. 
verse 8. God says, I will instruct you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. What's the counsel? Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with brit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Can I ask, and I'm not joking, but can I ask, are you a mule? When it comes to obeying God's clear commands, like a mule, do you have to be prodded and pulled along to comply? Do you believe God owes you a reasonable explanation for his commands? That is, do you stand in judgment over God's commands and you assess whether, you know what, this is worthy for me to obey or this is not worthy for me to obey? Let me ask you this. Are you a mule when it comes to attending church? Do you literally have to be dragged to come here? Are you a mule when it comes to reading God's word? Are you a mule when it comes to prayer? Are you a mule when it comes to serving others? Or what about giving? Are you a mule when it comes to tithing? Indeed, are you reluctant to stay near to the Lord Always wanting to go off on your own? Faith, you know what this verse is saying? It's reminding us that God is concerned with both covering our sin and shaping our character. Please hear me. God does not want reluctant compliance. No, that's what a mule does. Instead, God wants joyful obedience from his people. That's why he says in verse 11, have your eyes fall there, notice the command, be glad in the Lord. You know what that command, be glad in the Lord is? Please hear me. It is the inward heart change that needs to take place in the mule. Mules aren't glad about anything but themselves. They are stubborn this should not be true of the Christian. I want to draw your attention to verses 9 and 4. Because you know what's happening in verse 4? God is prodding David, the stubborn mule, to get him to confess. That's what the heavy hand is. David, come. Stay close to me, David. Come to me. Share. Confess your sins. And David is, no, no. No, no. So he says his hand was heavy upon him and praise the Lord his hand was heavy on David because it led him to uncover his sin so God in his mercy could cover it. As we sing, our sins there are many, his mercy is what? More, praise him. Faith, is your Christianity mule-like? Don't be proud of that. 
If it is, confess that to the Lord and receive his forgiveness. We're all on a quest for happiness. And Christian, I want to remind you that the temporary fleeting joys of this world, not all the joys are sinful. We can praise God for them. But if, if you want to be anchored, if you want to have a joy and a happiness that sustains your heart through the trials of living in a Genesis 3 world, have your eyes fixated on the fact that you are forgiven by God in the Lord Jesus Christ. To close, we're going to sing Shine Into Our Night. And I invite you that as we sing this song, that this would be a song of confession and repentance, that you'd be reminded once again of our Savior's great grace. Let's pray.